You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Daphne Richmond Barak, professor at the Louder School of Government at the Reichman University and adjunct scholar to Modern War Institute, but more importantly, my close friend that I've worked with for years studying underground, subterranean, tunnel warfare. Dr. Richard Barak actually authored the quintessential book that I highly recommend called Underground Warfare. Daphne, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. So one, my heart goes out to you, your family, and all those in Israel. As I know, you're in, you're in Israel. You're living this on a day-to-day basis. You are the reason I know so much that I do know, although I'm, a, I'm just a student of tunnel warfare and underground warfare, but you're the reason I know a lot that I know with our conferences, your conferences in Israel, our international working group on subterranean warfare, you taking me to the Hezbollah tunnel in the north and to IDF tunnels in the south, but you know, more importantly, it just my heart goes out to you for the, being in this awful situation that nobody wants. Yeah, well, I really appreciate the kind words. It's really been a very, very difficult uh, 10 days. I've lived in Israel for the past 18 years. And uh, I'm originally from France, but I've lived in the U.S. and in the U.K. But uh, And we've had many wars. Uh, we've had the second Lebanon war with Hezbollah and then five confrontations. This is the fifth confrontation with Hamas. But never, never have we we've um, been through s- such dark times. Really, really dark. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. So... I want to talk about Hamas tunnels, right? So I, I I authored the piece really quickly just to try to give people some context of what I knew about Hamas tunnels. Um, but I, I, I'm really excited to have a conversation with you, which I consider you know, one of the, the leading experts on it and who have studied it much more than I have and much of that I know is from you. But to cover some of the things that we co- what I covered in the article, which is I call a, a nightmare, both a nightmare and a wicked problem as in there's no real solution to it but i want to just quickly inform people on what are the hamas tunnels that the idf could face when they i but to be i know realistic they face them all all they face them every day before this with the infiltration infiltration tunnels attack tunnels but um could you just give me a, a context from from your point of view on what we know about hamas tunnels like how much is there, how deep they go, how they construct them, which is very unique, and things like that. Yeah, sure. Look, these Hamas tunnels are once again in the spotlight. I think there's also a lot of um, misunderstanding, maybe confusion about the different types of tunnels that we have in this region, because there are quite a lot between the ones of Hezbollah that I uh, that you mentioned, that you visited, and also even just Hamas's tunnels, the ones that are inside Gaza, the ones that are the border between Israel and Gaza and the ones that are the border between Gaza and Egypt, I think people can easily kind of get lost. So just uh, to try to situate us, we're really talking now, uh, maybe we'll talk about the others later, but the, the ones that I think you're referring to are the ones um, inside the Gaza Strip or beneath the Gaza Strip, beneath Gaza City and a few other places uh, inside Gaza. These tunnels um, uh, have been built consistent, consistently um, over time uh, by Hamas. And Hamas has, over the years, also integrated underground warfare 
more and more into its overall strategy. Uh, what we know about this network is that at this moment, um, it is an incredibly uh, large, intricate, um, sophisticated network of tunnels. Um, a precise length would be very difficult to give. I, I think I've heard estimates, but I really don't want to venture there. What I do know is that, again, they've been built um, for about two decades, uh, even though Israel has hit them at times, you know, it, particularly during Operation Protective Edge um, in 2014, which was the latest, um, the, the large, you know, I guess before this one, the largest uh, confrontation with Hamas. Um, it wasn't all destroyed and whatever was destroyed was rebuilt. And so now we can expect um, a very uh, sophisticated network. Some of these tunnels, I, I would say they go between, the average would be about 50 meters deep. Um, wait, hold on. How many is that in feet? 160 feet, maybe something like this. And um, they they are sometimes reinforced with concrete, but not always. Um, some of them have electricity. Uh, some of them have also uh, reinforced with metal. Uh, some of them may have um, quite simple ways of uh, transportation, maybe some tracks to transport uh, ground, maybe cement, maybe other we maybe weapons, maybe other things. But I think the, 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 the features or the characteristics of the tunnels really depends on what that particular section of the tunnel network is being used for. If it's being used as a living quarter or a command and control center, then you expect it to be equipped with more amenities, quote-unquote, right? Um, if you're in the living quarters, then similarly. But if you're talking about lines of communication, about just, you know, the kind of big passageways that you that we've seen pictures of, then that would I would expect that to be slightly more rudimentary. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's no... Well, I do find it interesting every time I've been in a Hamas replica tunnel, it is that very standardized, which I just go off open source, right? Um, two meter high, one meter wide prefabricated concrete sides and archways which allows them to to dig them so quickly and um the basically since this isn't the first operation like from all the way back from when the idea um was in gaza in the 2000s that aspect of the tunnels underneath and the evolution of the countermeasures has caused uh from what i what I've been told, I researched to go deeper and deeper, right? So to to prevent that detection, penetration, uh, being able to hit them. And I think open source, they they found a Hamas tunnel that was two hundred thirty feet below the surface. Yeah, they definitely go deeper and deeper. It's like a race, right? The 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 better Israel detection gets, the deeper Hamas digs. And also, once you know um, how to dig a, a, a tunnel, then you know you learn how to dig it deeper. Like you acquire those skills as you go. Yeah. And I think the estimates of the, I know they call it the, the metro is a, is a common because it's not just like one area that connects to multiple cities. It's, it's really a labyrinth down there of interconnected underground passages made for military purposes to include estimates of 300 miles, but it could be much more than that. It basically, this network um, holds inside it everything that you'd expect a military to have, right? It has all the weapons are stored there. Uh, the rocket launchers are hidden there. They just pop out of the ground in order to, you know, when, when they launch rockets and then they go back in. Um, it has command and control centers, as I already mentioned. But you're right, it's definitely a, a combination of passageways and rooms, and it can be on different levels as well. So there yeah. are different arteries, different levels. 
Um, and yeah, over a large, over it's, it's a rather small piece of territory, but the tunnels, of course, they go and they zigzag. So they can, um, they can, they can fill much more uh, in terms of uh, mileage, right? That they can be much longer than the size of the territory itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, connecting to those smuggling tunnels, to those infiltration tunnels, like connecting it all together to those tunnels that go to the secret rocket launching sites where they can bring rockets up through the tunnel and then pop it out at a, you know, a secret location to launch the rockets or pre-position rockets. I was seeing during, you know, 2014, these remote controlled rocket launching sites that are actually connected by a tunnel, uh, all of that. So that is an aspect that I tried to cover in the book. Just, you know, I think this is where people might have a misunderstanding of tunnel warfare of the past, where, like you said, this is a core vital aspect of Hamas's strategy at the, I think at the strategic level, right? Where other people might use the tunnels to, of course, defensively to protect themselves from observation and, you know, strike from outside, uh, wherever it is like ISIS or others who use tunnels tactically, um, in, in, especially in urban areas, but I think this one is unique to even North Korea, right? Because you and I, we even wrote a piece about North Korea tunnels. and, and That's right. Yeah, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And they have military, yeah, yeah, they have probably some of the world's most deep, you know, cities underground, uh, air bases underground, of course, deep buried military targets. But the strategy of Hamas mixes their fully military capable, military designed tunnels underneath, like you said, civilian structures as which is other part of their strategy is to use this lawfare like the to restrict the use of force against them by not only going underground because they they don't have free range of motion on the ground on the surface because of israel's capabilities israel's aerial assets which again is unlike other enemies like isis who had time to prepare surface defenses and in in kind of incorporate a little bit of tunnels under their houses and things like this but this is a a core part of two elements of Hamas's strategy to achieve their goals is one to go as deep underground and expansive underground as it can, and then connect those two protected sites and protected populations under international humanitarian law. Would you agree? Definitely. I, I think, I, look, until now, what we saw in terms of the, the, the convergence, right, between this urban element or urban terrain and then the subterranean which comes and adds even more complexity to it. Um, uh, until now, what we saw was uh, tunnels would, for example, be dug. Um, there would be like an exit point under the sink of uh, a kitchen, you know, in, in a civilian dwelling. And this, I, I think we can still expect to, to see things like this, but the, the type of tunnels that connect between the basements of different houses and then kind of like uses those basements to connect among them and then create, you know, then there's another man specifically dug tunnel to kind of connect between them. This is actually a lot from ISIS. And we saw this a lot in Syria and Iraq. And I suspect that now this is what it looks like. So I agree with you. I think it looks like this now where uh, even underground, the civilian structures connect to the, to the military uh, apparatus of Hamas. I don't think it was like this before. I think it was just in terms of coming in and coming out. But now I think it's really all connected. So let's talk a little bit about, and I, you know, of course, operational security, you never since this has been a threat, not just Hamas tunnels, but Hezbollah tunnels as well, the IDF and Israel in general have developed very unique and 
larger capabilities than most people that I know of. Um, do you want to quickly talk to, you know, I put a couple in there with Yalom, uh, the weasels and all these different solutions that have been dealt, developed by the IDF. But while I know they are context dependent to me in, in, you know, visiting with you to some of the units, some of the training sites, uh, it's very uh, unique in Israel that they have prepared for this type of fighting. Yeah, it's unique that they've prepared for it. They had a big wake-up call in 2014 when they had to send IDF soldiers into the tunnels and they were really unprepared. As you know, they didn't have the right equipment. They hadn't gone through the proper training. They really didn't know what they were doing. And in fact, there were a lot of casualties. But um, so Israel had nine years since then to kind of up its game. So did Hamas, of course. But Israel did a lot of work in terms of detection, um, which uh, is less relevant now because uh, it's too late to really engage in thorough detection uh, exercise but in terms of what um, what Israel can do well it has had time to train its soldiery it has this mock facility of IDF tunnels that uh, you described you spoke about before um, it has trained special units it has also given basic knowledge of underground warfare to all regular soldiers which I think is really important um, and uh, and it has um, it has acquired the right equipment it has engaged in R&D so it's done a lot for sure, uh, but when it comes down to it, and now you have these three-layered problem, right, of urban, subterranean, and on top of that, you now have the hostages yes. in the tunnel. So I think you know people think, oh, Israel has not figured it out. Um, we need to be, you know, Israel has not figured it out. Um, I think when you put all these three layers of problems together, urban, septi, and the hostages, probably inside the tunnels as well, or at least in the Gaza Strip. You end up with an equation that I don't think Israel, you know, no, no matter how prepared you are for this, um, uh, it's not. A, I mean, I don't think it, we're really there yet, right? I don't think this is there's a solution, or that, I don't think it's going to be easy. Um, and uh, and also remember, this is not the, the only threat that Israel faces. So Israel can't, you know, didn't put all of its resources into this problem, into uh, you know finding solutions to subterranean threats, whether they're cross border or not. Israel has the missile problem, the Iranian problem, uh, you know, so they're they quite a lot to, to keep the IDF occupied. And this is a small piece of it, but unfortunately, uh, it is not really creating, you know, it is the next challenge um, as uh, this um, sort of iron, um, you know, advances. And and, uh, and it we're likely to see um, a lot of casualties, I think, uh, from, from from this urban fight, uh, subterranean and, and, and hostages, all of it combined. Yeah, I actually want to talk about that when we talk about what can the IDF do against it. But let's just say that you know fighting underground, which is from your book, and I just I borrow it liberally sometimes with with citations. But you know, public speaking, uh, it's more analogous to fighting under under the sea than it is on the surface or inside of a building. Um, not just from the law perspective, I know which it, um, there's nobody I can talk to that knows it better than you. But for me, as a tactical um, and this is what you know. Conferences that we, you have arranged and we have attended, fighting underground, nothing that you use on the surface works. You have to have specialized equipment to breathe, to see, to navigate, to communicate, and to deploy lethal means, especially shooting. Uh, there are cape and a map to know what's down there, right? So 
all the there are technologies for all of that now. I mean, DARPA did a massive five-year subterranean challenge where they developed robots that could go in and navigate sub all kinds of subterranean spaces and come back and tell the human in a loop what's down there. And you know, like you said, like I think um, there's been nobody that I know of who have had the number of people looking at underground warfare than Israel has. Like everybody has a little specialized group here, specialized group there. TIDF have a, a, a very large unit, but it's all limited in comparison to the the actual size of the problem in Gaza. And this is what I really want to get to in the meat of the conversation. Let's talk about what has historically been done to deal with tunnels when found, right? So um, going back from ancient to today, when a military unit or whatever finds a tunnel, you can, there are a couple options and, and these are even in the, which is really good. I mean, it's open you know, the, the U S army's subterranean, which I know you had a, you helped advise on it and Joe Vega and all of our friends. There there's certain tasks you give a military. You can give them the task to find the tunnel to once it's found, neutralize it, you know, basically close the entrances and exits, uh, map it, destroy it, clear it, uh, and a few other tasks. But in this context, what has been done in the past to deal with tunnels? So, look, in the past, if you look at uh, how states have reacted to subterranean threats in the past, which I think the first main uh, observation that um, that you'd make is to realize that states don't do well when they face subterranean threats, meaning... This is, this is an invisible threat. This is a threat that um, elucidates a lot of fears, uh, fears of the unknown. Where is the enemy? What is the enemy doing? It's impossible to know. The enemy will take me by surprise, which is true, right? The tunnels do take by surprise again and again and again. So states, um, and, and they are, and, 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 you know, add to that the fact that there is really no perfect way um, to deal with subterranean threats. So what states have done in the past is whenever they face this kind of threats, they deploy their most powerful weapons. The United States deployed B-52 bombers um, in Vietnam, um, very powerful bunker busters in Afghanistan. Um, ISIS tunnels were taken care of by Russia's uh, flamethrowers in Syria. It's, uh, we're talking about very, very powerful weapons, which, uh, you know, th- this, is, this is what history has shown us. Oh, and during World War I, we had, like, literally both both sides going underground and trying to hear and listen to each other and kill each other before the, the enemy does it. So that was that was really that was really really lethal and, and and there were a lot of accidents as well. So what has been done is really not of huge um, you know doesn't provide a lot of relief or help for, for what to do now. I mean, what can be done now uh, is a whole entirely different question, right? But bunker booster uh, in Gaza, that you know again. Because, because of the difficulty, right, the operational complexity of dealing with the tunnels, it, it's already complicated to deal with tunnels and to eliminate them, not just neutralize them, because I don't believe that's good enough for long-term security. But if you want to eliminate tunnels and you have civilian population above the tunnels, um, it's, it's, it's borderline impossible. So this is why Israel gave this order to evacuate northern Gaza. Uh, because that's really the only way to eliminate the military apparatus of a terrorist organization that has deliberately chosen to place its such military apparatus under, you know, where the civilian population is and under it. 
And and so in order to deal with these tunnels, they have you know Israel has to minimize the amount of civilians that are there. Uh, and then what can it do? Um, I guess that's the next question, right? Because we're looking at past practice, and these are very um, these these are legally and morally and um, might also for operationally not work very well here. But here, I think what we're likely to do to see in in Gaza is um, uh, what we're likely to see in Gaza is the IDF going for the elimination of this network and not neutralization, which is what it tried to do in previous confrontations. And um, to do that, uh, Israel can do a few things um, based, again, on past practice. If you look at what the U.S. is doing at the Mexico border, where there are tunnels, uh, and Israel did the same thing with the Hezbollah tunnels, they poured cement inside the tunnels. So that's one option. But what are the downsides? Um, Well, there are a couple of downsides with regard to, um, you know, operating or maneuvering or working with this cement, right? You need to bring these big trucks full of cement. You need to act very quickly because the cement can harden. You need to put it in the right place. Can you do this in the middle of hostilities? What do you think, John? I I think this looks to me very difficult. No, I agree. And and I remember that, especially from in the north in the Hezbollah tunnels, that was a massive. And you can watch the video where the cement blows from Israel and pops up in a, a house on the other side. But I agree with you. It's just just by scale. Again, you're not going to have that. Would take hundreds and thousands of cement cement trucks that you'd have to escort and secure into those locations. I mean, there's both the tactical situation of how do you do with it, deal with it in the operation, and then what do you do with them after the operation, right? I don't know how you make it work. And also, it's really expensive, by the way, the cement. And there are a few other problems. I believe cement is it doesn't fully solve the problem because you can still dig through it or you know it's a bit more difficult obviously but it's not like impossible and um and yeah how do you do that under fire i mean i think it's not it's not a it's not a workable solution for for what we have now so so what is what are some other possibilities then um you've got this um special um liquid emulsion that israel has developed already for a few years which is uh you basically take two liquids that are you know uh, that you know that mix together when mixed together produce um an explosion, and then you drop that into the tunnel. You can take care of that from outside the tunnel. So that's the main advantage. It's still very dangerous. They called that, at least I called it. I don't know if they called it. Last time I was visiting, they called it the SpongeBob bomb. So basically, you mix these two binary compounds. Oh, that's what you meant by SpongeBob. Okay. Yeah. They, that's what they, I could have swore is what they told me when they showed me, but it, it's emulsia. They call it emulsia. Sometimes. Okay. Uh, and so that's the idea, but there are soldiers who lost their, you know, their sight doing that, as you know. And um, and so so the liquid emulsion, but I, I believe that this will probably be used because this is probably doable even in the middle of, of, a, of a fight. Um, now, some people have told me obstructing the tunnel entrances, uh, you know, just blocking off the entrances, uh, this is definitely not good enough. And, and what else? So then you have, uh, of course, uh, air strikes, right? Uh, you can strike from above. And that's what, you know, is the most common way, I think, of dealing with tunnels. And that's why... Uh, that works. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love this stuff. I mean, especially, you know, I'm way down in the weeds on the tactical stuff of ways it's been done in the past and why, especially legally, there are many issues with that. Yeah, the SpongeBob is amazing. And, and I've never seen it anywhere but there, but it's basically that compound that creates this real large foam mass. Really, if people think about like a sewer a sewer tunnel entrance that you could seal that that entrance temporarily so you can continue mission. But 
I mean, even from visiting the ancient city of David, uh, with the tour there, they showed me how the Romans in 70 AD, when they sacked Jerusalem, built fires because there were, uh, Jewish people in the sewers trying to escape and they built fires and started fires and you can see them in the sewerways and to smoke out the people hiding, the civilians hiding in there. That's flush them out. They're flushing them out, right? This is what it's called flushing a tunnel. Oh, it's called flushing. Or you are trying to basically kill the people down there with the smoke because of asphyxiation, right? And this was you know, of the solutions of Vietnam, right? The American, Australian solutions. There, There's a really good video that you and I have, uh, have both seen where, okay, no, step one, uh, tunnel rats, right? People that are smaller, um, you send them down with a flashlight and a pistol. That's to clear it. Uh, really dangerous, really not ideal. The other ways that the U.S. D- did it was one, drop two grenades in it to, to seal the entrance. It's pretty, you know, again, it's, it's a neutralized, the entrance point. Right. It's not enough, though. L- listen, what we need here, I mean, listen. You got to let me talk about tear gas, though. You got to let me talk. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, tear gas. Yeah, because this is the thing, right? This is, this is what's led to my urban warfare studies and why can't we use tear gas as a form of, Warfare, it's it's very complex. But one of the reasons is tear gas was one of the preferred solutions by U.S. forces in Vietnam to deal with the expansive tunnel networks. They had this generator called a Mighty Meter that had hoses, and it would pump tear gas, industrial-level amounts, into tunnels. Or they had uh, bags of tear gas powder that would shake into the tunnel and then seal it to the top so that was one of our solutions but it became a really big issue because this is and i'm gonna notice your expertise but the the u.s senate had debates on whether that was right to put tear gas into a tunnel when you don't know if it's only enemy down there there's hospitals down there there was i mean in vietnam they had hospitals underground right, there was everything yeah mm-hmm. they did everything so it became this big issue maternity ward mm-hmm. but I, I mean, there are small cases where people are still we have you and i have both observed where there have been militaries around the world where dropping a smoke grenade down a tunnel so that you can see where the smoke comes out is a method. But now you start to get into legalities, which I really want to talk to you about, but there are lots of things that have been done, but can you and should you do those things? Yeah. I, I, by the way, the smoke in order to detect, to map the tunnel, basically more like in mapping and detection, yeah. less in neutralization. This is actually one of the most efficient methods of um for doing that and um th- this is a very good one but now i want to tell you something about gas yeah if israel were to use gas for any reason yeah. inside tunnels even if it's the most efficient way of doing whatever it is that they're doing there will be so much so much criticism it, it you know it would be, it, it is this is like you know putting oil on the fire yeah and it will um legally it is you know, you could make a case for some aspects. For example, I think there is a case to be made about smoke for mapping, which we just talked about, because that's really the only way. But um, but even that is debatable and controversial, and you need to be extremely careful. And you know, so I would I would really recommend that Israel stays away from that yep. to avoid any any problems. I think there are alternatives as opposed to in mapping, where I think there really aren't. But um, I, I look because of what's happened in Israel right now, what you know the establishment is looking for and what the IDF is looking for is really a hard kill of these tunnels, yep. like a, 
they need to be destroyed um, the, to a, way, a point where the facility, you know, the, the, the walls collapse, the roof collapses. Can you destroy something without clearing it first? That's my question. Look, it's a military target, right? Yes. This entire network of channel is a gigantic military target. Agree. All right. Now, of course, I'm not talking if there's in some place a shelter for civilians. Obviously, I'm excluding that. But I'm saying based on what we just described, yep. right? And so... Uh, in this context... The question is not whether or not... Can, yeah. yeah. But, in the context... So then the question becomes the collateral damage. Yeah. And the hostages. Right? How much collateral damage uh, would be within the boundaries of the law? Yeah. And the law does take into consideration that in armed conflict, there will be collateral damage. Yeah. Meaning it's not, we're not playing a game now of zero casualties. It's impossible. Like, I think this is another, you know, kind of, we're talking about misconceptions about how to wage war. I mean, I think, <laughs> I don't need to tell you this, yeah. but I think a lot of people these days think that war needs to be waged without, you know, any kind of collateral damage. And that's impossible. So um, the question is, how much collateral damage would not be excessive in comparison to the military advantage that you're hoping to gain from this particular strike, you know, from the destruction of that particular tunnel? Um, and uh, I think it's pretty clear that the military advantage of destroying this uh, military network of tunnels is very high. So collateral damage would not necessarily be outside the bounds of the law. Uh, it is this military apparatus, these, these ammunitions, uh, these command and control centers, they need to be destroyed. So the command and control center that is under a hospital, the Shifa hospital, for example, that would probably be causing a very significant collateral damage and hospitals are very protected under the law of war. And Israel would probably not target it. But if you ba put it in a, in a balance, the, the military advantage that you expect from destroying this entire command and control center, that would justify, quote unquote, under the law, qu quite a high number of civilian casualties that are incidental, of course, not intentional. Yeah. So this is what the law does. The law takes, looks at the reality of war and says, some you know, sometimes you have a target that when you, you it, it's very valuable, right? It's going to get you closer to victory. Uh, and but you but some civilians who are in the vicinity are going to die. They are not you're you're not trying to target those civilians, but they are an incidental cost. Yeah, but and the law says, well, that it's only if that is excessive to the military advantage that it becomes unlawful. But few people understand that. And so, bringing it back to our uh, you know our problem of subterranean uh, warfare. Uh, if, and this was your question, what does it need to be empty? It doesn't need to be empty. The, the fighters are legitimate targets. Uh, the fighters, the terrorists, the Hamas terrorists that are inside those tunnels, those animals that raped, murdered, burned people alive, they are legitimate targets. So they'll get killed. Now, the problem is if there are civilians inside the tunnels or above the tunnels or in the vicinity of the tunnels, and these are the ones that you take into account when you do the collateral damage analysis. Yes, and... What it's called a collateral damage estimates, right? Yeah, hundred percent. CD. So my, I get, I, I hundred percent get that. But I think that and this is why I call it the wicked problem. Is that yes, and I love going through all the different options. And now everybody online is it, um, wants to comment to the article when they just read the article. Some of those options are in there, but like 
smoking people out, burying enemy inside tunnels, very common tactic in warfare from Iwo Jima to um, other places. You just close the tunnel. Like, why do you need to go down there? It's too dangerous. Uh, but the hostage situation for me really makes it a really wicked problem where there is no one solution to what are you going to do about the tunnel based on the intelligence you have about that tunnel. Yes, there are all kinds of like little uh, RC remote control cars and drones that bounce off walls and all this kind of stuff that, that has been developed that you can send forward. There's dogs. Um, there's all kinds of stuff. But really, uh, why I think this one is a challenge that I haven't seen before is the fact that not only do you have hundreds of miles of tunnels, you don't have to deal with all those. But in the operation, based on what the objectives are, how much the fact that the most likely place for Hamas to put hostages are underground. 100%. So what do you do? Um, even the flooding. Let's let's talk this one, Mike, because it, it has gotten so much response, even though I put in there, yes, Egypt along Egypt-Gaza border to stop some of the cross-border smuggling, some of it. Uh, they flooded many of the tunnels they found with seawater and sewage, raw sewage. Is that an option if you have... It, is it an option in general in Gaza for the IDF to do flood it with seawater? And is it an option to do if you have hostages and you don't know if they're down there? The option of sewage water is off the table, okay? Because that's really um, not, uh, this is not, a, not accepted under the law of war. Uh, the question of water, though, is different regular water, clean water, uh, seawater. And um, and I have uh, I have been uh, told recently a couple of people like you said you know very interested and sending on their own suggestions and I I've been thinking about this this idea of kind of like building a platform offshore uh, off you know off the Gaza Strip and then uh, doing horizontal drilling in order to reach the tunnel via the sea and then um, in you know basically use very high pressured water and. Uh, put that into the tunnels, but without entering even the Gaza Strip, right? Or without sending any soldiers inside. Uh, I have to say that this option, um, which has never been done before, if it were to be done, it would be um, innovative and it might uh, it might actually provide what I mentioned before as a hard kill, right? The real destruction of the of the underground facility, which would cause its walls and its roof to collapse, this would do it, um, and if there are, and so, so that might be something to be considered if the tunnels have been evacuated. Um, and then, of course, you asked me the question of the hostages, and so if there are hostages, obviously that that I I don't think that's that's a possibility. It might be a possibility in areas where there are no hostages, assuming we know where they are and they haven't been spread out all over. Um, but I think overall, what we need to remember, and to me, this is really the you know, the main, I think, kind of thing to take away from this conversation is that not a, no single method will do the job unto itself. And ideally, what the IDF would do at this point is combine the methods. Do, you know, use some bulldozers in a ground operation to kind of like find the openings. Then maybe use the liquid explosives into those. Or maybe, uh, you know, uh, of course, aerial strikes here are play a significant role. I, they are probably the most important element. And then maybe, you know, try to work with this horizontal drilling idea, which, um, uh, we, 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 again, in, in some circumstances it might work. But um, I think 
no matter what is ultimately done here, the, uh, the option of sending the soldiers inside the tunnels is not the way to achieve what Israel is trying to achieve, which is the elimination of this tunnel network. When you send soldiers into a tunnel, you're not going to s- destroy the tunnels. It doesn't work like this. I mean, it's just, they're, go- they're going to get killed. This is a trap. These tunnels have been booby-trapped. Um, and, and, and so this is not a way to achieve kind of the military objectives of the IDF at this moment, right? I think that's another misconception, right? Oh, if Israel does a ground operation and send the soldiers, then it will eliminate the Hamas network. No, absolutely not. This has to be done some other way. Um, most military doctrines, whenever they do exist, they advise against sending soldiers into the tunnel. This has to be a measure of last resort. One way or one scenario in which I could consider, and again, not ideal, but to, to, for the soldiers to enter the tunnels would be to get the hostages out. I hope they'll be out before we need to get to this point. But, if, but that would be, I think, to me, the only... Uh, you know, also Israel has a duty towards its soldiers. Force protection. You don't send them if you know what's going to happen to them is is absolutely deadly at ninety percent probability likelihood, right? So that to me would be irresponsible. I hope this is not going to be done. I hope Israel will come up with a combination of methods, maybe some innovative methods that we haven't seen before that we maybe haven't thought about or contemplated, but a combination of them adapted to each particular area and each particular tunnels, uh, in particular tunnel. And, uh, and refrain to the extent possible from, from sending the soldiers in. It is the paradox. You would never want to send a soldier into a tunnel, period. Um, sometimes the mission, this is why it is, like you said, situational dependent on what the situation is. Like all the mission variables, what is the mission? Like you said, is to destroy them. Uh, how much time do you have? There is always a limited amount of time that Israel has to conduct its operations, even in this worst case scenario of war against such an atrocious, you know, such a gruesome act. Uh, but time is a factor in even, and this is what I ended my article with. I agree with you hundred uh, percent. And I agreed at the end of my article is no matter what, they'll have to deal with them. And no matter what, it will increase the time it takes to accomplish their mission. Right, because the, the tunnels they slow they slow you down and they, they they are a headache. They are they are like this nightmare that you're describing. And they this is you know um, the the tunnels they don't just um, complicate things. Also, they they change the nature of the fight. Right, they change the kind of things you need to think about. The way you build your operation at the operational level. The it's it's not just a, a a detail or something that needs to be taken into account alongside yep. other factors. It is. The main thing, because it changes how you secure the area, it changes the kind of soldiers you can send, um, and it it really it, it puts your forces into harm's way to unprecedented level. And of course, it has this problem with the civilian population. So ultimately, um, ultimately, listen. At some point, I mean, I want to be honest here. At some point, it might be that the IDF needs to drop some kind of thermobaric or bunker buster in there. I agree with you. Thermobaric, you know, sucks the oxygen out of a room. I mean, it, it destroys, it collapses. It, um, you know, we talked, you mentioned flamethrowers. I'm flamethrowers are very effective in clearing confined spaces like bunkers and tunnels. Uh, you know, they're, they're look, we do multi day, multiple day, um, conferences on this topic because it is so complex. It's not a simple solution 
there are so many variables from the law to the tactics to the operational design, so much of it. And honestly, I, um, I think we should leave it there. I mean, for real, there are a lot of options, but like you said, this will, this will have to be something that is dealt with and, it, and it's no longer the old way of dealing with the tunnel threat in the tunnel strategy of Hamas. It has to be eliminated, destroyed. Uh, and I think that's what's going to happen. So, Daphne, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And uh, we'll keep uh, discussing this, I guess, for a little while longer. Absolutely. And, 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 and into the future, because it is such a neglected factor and of warfare today, not in the past today. Look, ultimately, every state that has sophisticated capabilities needs to be watching what goes on and is watching because... Um, this is a threat that exists, uh, you know, all over the world. It's not uh, just uh, an Israeli problem, as we know. And uh, there will be trends and there will be innovations in this fight that uh, will eventually, uh, hopefully, advance also the knowledge of other states and, uh, and, and enhance their preparedness in front of subterranean threats. 100%. Thank you, Daphne. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out IndieWise other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.